Hello and welcome to the Hit Shuffle Podcast. I'm your host, Matt. And I am your host, Dave. Welcome to episode 34. 34. What have you been listening to recently? Uh, I have been listening to some old stuff. Uh, First thing, a song came up on Shuffle. Uh, You'll remember this from way back from Tony Hawk 3, I think it was. uh, The Boy Who Destroyed the World by AFI. (laughs) That's awesome. Was in the Rodney Mullen vi- little video segment. Yeah. I remember. Listening to the first Inner Shikari album, Take to the Skies, uh, specifically the song No Sweat. <laughs> yeah, I like that one. That's a good one. Uh, what about you? What have you been listening to? So, funnily enough, I have also been listening to AFI. Oh, nice. It's getting about that time of year, I think. I think so. I had Miss Murder stuck in my head, so I had to put on the December Underground album and uh, listen through that. That was a good listen. And then uh, I went, I was talking to you, I went out just, well, I guess it was two days ago, and caught this band, this ska band up the street, and uh, they're called Keep Flying. They're from the East Coast, uh, they were all, they were touring their album release for their album Daylight, and the one track Left Behind really stuck out to me, it's really good. Uh, there's nothing quite like a discovering a new ska band in 2023. <laughs> Yeah, and they're good. They're like a pop-punk ska band, like that new style. Ooh, yeah, that's a real good combo. Yeah, it's really good. And if you want to listen to all these songs and everything that we talk about today, you can find them on the Hit Shuffle podcast playlist on Spotify. So I guess we'll take a quick break and come back and you'll start us off. Uh, yeah. All right. (laughs) All right, and we are back. So, Dave, you are up first this week, so go ahead and roll your die and let's see what we get. All right. We got a five. Five. Keeping it low. Nice low roll like last week. All right, let's see what we get here. All right, we got Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson. The legendary Thriller album. All right, let's, uh, let's dive in. Thriller. 
Alright, and my song again is Billie Jean by Michael Jackson off his 1982 album Thriller. And uh, this is, I mean, it's definitely quite different from, I think, pretty much anything we've covered on here before. Yeah, I'd say. Just a bit different. Possibly the oldest song, too? Uh, that we've actually talked about? I think so. And I think to preface a little bit, not really going to get into any type of personal controversy type no, stuff. No, no, <clears throat> Not what we're about. This is about the music and the musician. So I think probably almost everybody knows who Michael Jackson is to some degree. I would hope so. <laughs> Definitely one of the most famous and successful uh, recording artists of all time. He is the king of pop after all. Very true. Very influential. You know, a lot of pop musicians and producers and everything today, he's one of their main inspirations. Of course. I mean, the, the stuff that they did, especially on this album, is just, it's, it paved the way for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, there is, this is, you know, possibly one of the biggest, most famous, most successful albums ever made. Ever. Yeah. And has not been touched. <laughs> influential. And it's just, uh, it's a big piece of music history. It is. When, when people normally think of, I say when people normally think of Michael Jackson's musical career, this is the era that they think of. Yeah, I think this is, this is definitely the peak. Because yeah. obviously, he, you know, his career spanned many decades and you know, multiple different styles. But I think this, musically, songwriting and everything, this was just like the absolute peak of it. Just he nailed everything he was doing perfectly. So Michael Jackson got into music originally around age five, I believe, five or six. So, yeah, right and around six with the, with the Jackson Five. So his, uh, his whole large family uh, had a band that his, his dad kind of ran and his brothers were in it. And then he and another brother joined up because they were a little bit younger. And then very shortly, almost right away, Michael went to sharing lead vocals. Yeah, he moved up pretty quick. The talent was, you know, there and apparent very early on. And the group became the Jackson 5 and had a very successful career just there uh, in the late 60s and through the 70s. Yeah, they did a big tour in like 66 to 68. They were on the road to the Midwest uh, making, making a name for themselves. And then they won the amateur night in the Apollo Theater in Harlem in 67, which is a huge deal. Yeah, which that led to them signing with Motown Records, which was definitely a place you wanted to be in oh, the yeah. late 60s and 70s. Signed to the record label, and the record label's like, yeah, we're, we think we're going to use uh, Diana Ross to help introduce you guys to everybody. Yeah, just, you know, just only like, Diana okay. Ross. Yeah. And this is all happening when Michael's not even 10 yet. Yeah. <laughs> Just that's just insane to think about that, you know, already a successful and accomplished musician before I had ever even touched an instrument. Yeah, same. Now, there's a lot about his childhood and his his father that is out there and how he has grown up in not exactly the greatest situation, even though he was, you know, this huge star. And I think that really molded him into the musician he became. Yeah, cause, you know, a lot of people, when, when they get into that kind of stuff, it, it, it always revolves around 
mainly personal things. You know, you hear people discuss the stuff about his father and, you know, that that led to, you know, his personality later on in life and behavior and stuff. But, you know, he, he was still a musician. And just like the rest of us, those kind of, you know, strongly emotional experiences, that's what you draw from for your music. Yeah. And it's it's crazy to see some of the stuff like, you know, he's an, a nationally famous star and he's talking about how he was so lonely. He would he would walk around the neighborhood and just hope to run into somebody just he, to talk to. Which is crazy to think about. Like, could you imagine nowadays somebody being nationally famous and like going out, walking around, looking for someone to run into and not find like not finding anything? Nowadays, they'd be, you know, tracked by 20 people as soon as they left their house. Yeah, which that's that's wild to think about. It's a whole different, it's a very different time. But then in 19, uh, shortly after the Apollo Theater, they released their first single, Jackson 5 released their first single, Big Boy, in 1968. But in 1970, they released I Want You Back, which became their first song to reach number one on the Hot 100. And it's also one of my absolute favorite songs. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I feel like, obviously, you know, when you bring up Jackson 5, I think probably, like, ABC would be the song that, like, everybody would probably think of. But I Want You Back, I feel like, musically, is is a better song. It's such a good fucking song. I love that song so much. And to think, you know, again, this is this is a song and performance that's being delivered by a very young child. Yeah. So then with Motown... He released four solo albums between 1972 and 1975, which weren't really, like, big. You know, they weren't really a big deal. Not not that they weren't a big deal, but in comparison. I mean, yeah, relatively, the, the, the music on those albums is, is not music that is generally talked about very much when you're talking about his career. No, not at all. And it's... Uh, I think a big part of that is that was very, very disco-influenced. Yeah, and it was still under the Motown label. <laughs> yeah, so it was it was definitely going for just making what was the most popular at the time. <laughs> yeah, and apparently there was a, a bit of a Motown kind of limited the creativity of what they could do. From what I yeah, heard, from what, they, it, what it looks like. I, I think because Motown ended up being such a, like, you know, pump-out commercial <laughs> artists type of thing, they wanted a lot of you know, control. They didn't want their bands coming out with music that didn't fit, like, their idea of their what they wanted. Yeah, they didn't want, like, you know, anything different. They wanted to do what was popular. Which, that led to the Jackson 5 leaving... Motown Records in 1975 and moving over to Epic Records. And renaming themselves the Jacksons. Yeah, so I actually, uh, I did did not know specifically that that was why the name changed until now. Like, I knew there was the Jackson 5 and then the Jacksons, but I did not know the specific reason why, but, you know, changing labels makes sense, especially back then. Yeah. yeah. Labels owned so much of everything. Uh, the Jacksons were also uh, still quite successful. Yeah, very. And they were, you know, Michael was the group's main songwriter and was still working on that in addition to releasing his solo music during the same time. And starring in The Wiz. Yes. 
1977, Michael Jackson moved to New York City to be the Scarecrow in a film version of The Wiz. Which was... Uh, which did not do well. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, had Michael Jackson, Diana Ross, but working on this complete failure of a movie in The Wiz was probably the most important thing that happened for Michael Jackson's career because that's where he met producer Quincy Jones. Yeah. Who is, you know, a legend of music in his own right. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, the, the the names under Quincy are, are absolutely insane. And those two would go on to release uh, Michael's next several solo albums together, which would be his biggest and most successful albums of his entire career. Yeah. And it's all started with the fifth, his fifth solo album, Off the Wall, in 1979, which kind of established him as like, okay, this is Michael Jackson. Yeah, it, it did still have a good bit of the disco sound that had been on his Motown solo albums. But he was moving up and it was going more towards... Uh, you know, talking about love and girls and kind of touching on like some sexual themes, which up until this point in his career, it was very, you know, pop, like really conservative bubblegum pop type stuff. Yeah. So it was a different sound and him kind of like, hey, guys, I'm, you know, I'm not really a kid anymore, which that album was also an absolute, you know, slapper. <laughs> for lack of a better word <laughs> yeah i mean it had some it had some good ones on there it had don't stop till you get enough on it i mean that's that's a yeah don't stop till you get enough rock with you yeah. both very good songs i remember having this album on cd as well as thriller when i was a kid and listening to this off the wall ended up basically being kind of a stepping stone to really launch the peak prime of michael's career yes that album being quite successful which this is another little fact that that i didn't specifically know before after off the wall in 1980 uh, michael negotiated the highest royalty rate in the music industry at the time 37 percent of wholesale profit that's crazy <laughs> which i you'll i don't think anybody could get remotely close to that now <laughs> I don't I know the it. numbers, but I feel like that has gone way down. But to to secure that, and then his next album be Thriller, <laughs> that's just amazing. Yeah, that's that's insane. Lock in the highest royalty rate in music, and then release the best-selling album of all time. <laughs> yeah, and it was a called shot, too. Yeah, it was... Michael kind of had a chip on his shoulder because he felt that Off the Wall should have been more successful than it was. Uh, it, it did not win the album of the year Grammy, and uh, that, that gave him a little problem. Yeah. Also, I actually, I really love this, not really a quote so much, but the thought that uh, when he went to write Thriller, Michael said, why can't you make an album where every song is a good song and a single? Yeah, right. <laughs> why can't every song be a hit song? Why Why are people releasing an album with one or two good songs and then just kind of, you know, filler for the rest of it just to make a whole album length? Like, let, let's go full on and just make an album that just slams from front to back. 
and then he made Thriller. <laughs> and I would say that's that's probably uh, mission successful yeah. for that. Hell of a called shot. Like, that's, that's wild. Now, Thriller, which is, if you've heard Michael Jackson, it's probably been off of Thriller. <laughs> yeah, because that's a lot of the stuff that still gets played. Obviously, you have Thriller, the title song, which is probably the music video is even bigger than the song in that case. Yeah, I mean, they, there's there's whole documentaries made just about the making of that that video. You've also got Billie Jean, Beat It, and The Girl Is Mine, which are all hugely successful singles and great songs. I mean, there's there were seven singles released from this album. Which, I mean, that's that's unheard of in almost any time period of music in this country. Yeah, I mean, when there's nine songs total, and seven of them came out as singles, that's t- that says something. Which, that's kind of crazy in itself, that th- there's only nine songs. Yeah. I mean, that, that, e- even with some longer songs, that's relatively short for a full, you know, LP type of album, and... They cut those out of 30 songs that they originally were working on during the recording sessions. Yeah, that's, that's, that's wild, man. 30 songs. So that, that's some real paring down. Yeah. Um, now I, I didn't look this up specifically, but I'm sure that over the years and all of the special editions and stuff, more of those 30 songs must have been released. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they have. The, the making of Thriller is, there's almost an endless amount of cool little facts and the way that they made sounds or little production things they did. It's just, you put Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones together and tell, and they're just trying to make the best thing they can. And it's it's just like a amazing feat of music production and engineering. It really is. I mean, and if you look at the the personnel that's listed that you just the amount of people that worked on this album is absolutely insane yeah it's like all of the you know the various engineers and there's all kinds of uh guest musicians obviously between michael and quincy they knew a lot of people yeah (laughs) around at the time i mean just like for example we've got paul mccartney shows up yeah you know uh, just paul mccartney Doing guest vocals. Uh, obviously, we have various appearances from numerous of Michael's siblings. Yep. For example, the bass on this song, Billie Jean, was played. The bass on Billie Jean was played by Lewis Johnson of the Brothers Johnson, who was one of the most influential funk bassists of all time. Yeah. Yeah, he was a, a very good, very, very renowned session player who was on a lot of albums. We have multiple members of the band Toto appearing on various tracks as <laughs> <Yep>. well. <laughs> so it's just, you know, they, they pulled, you know, from everybody. They had a deep bench, and they really contacted anybody they thought could contribute <laughs> in any way. And if Quincy Jones or Michael Jackson was like, hey, come work on my album with me, you're going to be like, uh, Yeah. And a lot of the stuff when you get into like the engineer credits and everything is you create, you've got engineers who worked on like one instrument of one track. Yep. <laughs> Just came in to do that because they were really good at that one specific thing. Yeah, they were that person. They knew that thing. 
Well, the other thing, one thing I did want to mention about the album is that it topped the Billboard 200 chart for 37 weeks and was in that's, the top 10 for 80 consecutive weeks. Yeah, that's in the top 10 for starting to go on two years. Almost two years in the top 10. And this is during the 80s where, you know, there's huge bands putting out albums left and right yeah and there's not like you know streaming services and youtube where you can you know find all these things they were finding them on public sources they weren't being passed around the internet yeah i mean you basically discovered new music by listening to the radio or you knew people who were like hey listen to this album or yeah. gave you an album to listen to yeah. so the the charts were much more reliable i think and much much better indicator back then yeah, than they absolutely. are now. Yeah, much, much, much different. Well, I guess that brings us to this song specifically, Billie Jean. And it's always been one of my favorites off of Thriller. Obviously, it's one of the more popular ones. Mine too. And it's, uh, it's a very good example of how you don't need to write a song complex musically and have it be amazing. Yeah, not at all. I mean, this song, this song like music-wise, this song is super simple. You know, you get, you get the bass line, which I think is probably the most recognizable part of the song, and it, it's basically just one measure bass line repeats through the whole song. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that one part is just, is just repeated through the entire thing, and it's it's... It's a dance track, man. It just makes you go. It's funny you say that because during the making of the song, the intro, which is, I think, now kind of iconic and, you know, a major part of the song, uh, Quincy Jones didn't like it. <laughs> no, he said it was too long. Yeah, he, he didn't like the long intro before, you know, like the lead vocals or anything kind of came in. Uh, but Michael said that he liked it because it made him want to dance. Yeah. And it does. And it's funny that apparently from numerous people that, that worked with him, if Michael said something made him want to dance, that was kind of the end of that. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But that was like, if, if he wants to dance, that's, it's going to happen. Like, this is what's going to happen. Which, I mean, makes sense. Like, you know, dancing was probably almost as much of his career and everything as the music was and it was a huge part of the whole thing so to make the music in a way that helped him with the dancing and everything just enhances the whole experience yeah i mean there's even stories of him like between takes and between stuff he would go off on his own and just work on dance moves yeah apparently quite a bit of time during the making of thriller was spent that way uh there was a lot of tension and Michael would just disappear and practice his dance moves. Now, the, the bass line, which is, like I said, I think it's one of the main parts of the song. It's very interesting. I actually found a video on YouTube just a week or two ago specifically about the bass in this song. And it's insane. It's a very simple bass line, basically the same thing throughout the whole song. It, you know, it's not a crazy complex part. But production-wise... It's one of the most complex sounds on the entire album. <laughs> Which is crazy, because it doesn't sound like it. Yeah, but I feel like it's one of those things where if you, if you took one of the parts away individually, all of a sudden it would be like, oh, whoa, why does it sound weird like right, that? Right, <laughs> exactly. 
And uh, just, just a real quick breakdown of this, because I like this example, and it, it goes to show you, like, the mind that Michael had for music and kind of pushing these musicians and engineers to use weirder sounds and different combinations of things to create, like, the exact specific perfect sound he had in his head, which I think that plays a big part, it, too, in the music being so successful without being... You know, while it's very simple. Right. Now, the bass is four different instruments. You have a guy, you have Lewis Johnson playing the, a normal electric bass guitar, playing the bass line. Uh, and then you have a mini Moog synthesizer that is just hitting the root notes. And, you know, if you listen to the bass line, you'll notice when it comes down to the root notes, there's an extra like bump, bump, yeah, just on hit. the bottom two notes, which is that. And then the third instrument is a synthesizer instrument called a synclavier, which is kind of its own crazy thing. And that sound is made up of four individual sounds on that instrument, which I'm not going to get into that level of detail. Uh, And then that is also run into an analog synth. So those are all the layers that go to create that one simple bass part. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's crazy how much went into that, and, and A, how simple of a part it is, but B, how memorable it is. I mean, it really, like, that's one of the, that and the, the drum groove together is really what makes the song such a good dance song, and the, the drum beat is basically as simple as you can possibly get. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. I mean, there's nothing to it. It's just like, you know, bass, snare. Bass snare with a little bit of hi hat thrown in. Yeah, you put that you put that bass line over top of it, and it just gets you you know wanting to bounce back and forth. And then there's a lot of little things that happen throughout the song here and there and everywhere that don't necessarily repeat a lot or even repeat. But there's just so many little things that keep it from sounding repetitive. Yeah, and it's also a lot of that's also in his vocal performance too, because he does those like noises and sounds and and little yeah. little things. The the signature Michael Jackson vocal accents, I guess. Yeah, you know it, it it's definitely something that's memed on, you know, probably more than almost anything with his music. You know, all of his he he's and whatnot, but it added such a unique aspect to his vocals. It really did. He's got all those, but almost in any part where there's not lyric vocals, he's doing something. You know, like he's he's humming, he's doing little vocal hits. It, it, he's just kind of singing notes without any direction to it, just adding things throughout. So there's just always little things going on that keeps the listener from getting bored and locked into like a, this repetitive cycle. I mean, you know, I mean that that there's not a lot to go into musically, like section by section, like we normally do. Yeah, I mean it's pretty much verse and chorus, and then I think there's maybe like an interlude part towards the end. <laughs> yeah, but but it doesn't change most, much. Yeah, the, most of the variance is just in little little details, not in any main musical sections. Which is crazy because it's a almost five minute song 
Yeah, but it really doesn't, like, it doesn't get repetitive or boring when you're listening through it. No, not at all. Now, I will say one one instrument part I really like that probably doesn't get talked about as much as, like, the bass and the drums. There's a guitar part in the chorus that's like a clean, semi-muted kind of strummed guitar, and I that I just love that. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Now, lyrically... Uh, there's, there's a little bit of conflicting reports from what I was reading, uh, between like what Michael said, and then there's a whole story that his biographer said, which was different. Right. They're in a similar vein, but it's, it's, they're still different. Yeah. Yeah. Michael's story was that it was based on interactions that he had seen between his older brothers and kind of obsessed groupies. Uh, when he was younger and they were on the Jackson 5. Right. Now they were, you know, waiting outside the door for, for whatever artist would come back and people always used sending letters and stuff. Uh, now, the story that the biographer told is a little more spicy. It was about Michael himself had an experience, supposedly in 1981, uh, where a fan wrote him letters claiming that he was the father of and I'm quoting this out of the thing directly, one of her twins. Don't, don't know how that works, but... <laughs> not quite sure. Um, obviously, Michael said that this was not the case and did not uh, answer. Boy, did it, it did not stop there. No. Uh, kept getting more letters, uh, including a package with a picture of the fan... A gun and a time that Michael was supposed to kill himself because the fan was also going to kill herself at the same time after she had killed the supposed baby so that they could all be together in another life. Yeah, that's not creepy or crazy or anything. Yeah, that sounds like something that would happen now. Yeah. <laughs> and to no one's surprise, the Jacksons found out that this fan uh, was committed to a mental health facility and was suffering from severe mental health issues. Yeah, I'd say. That's pretty... Uh, I don't think you need a doctor to diagnose that one. Well, I don't know that this is 100% true because, again, this is, this is from... Not from Michael. This is from another party. Although, if it was his official biographer, I feel like that's somewhat of a reputable source. Right. But... Either way, they're, they're both kind of, like you said, the same thing, which is the, the general story of the song is about this woman that is obsessed with the subject and is using a claim of paternity of her child to try to rope him in. And it's not like lyrically dense or, or deep or anything like that either. It's just kind of... I mean, it's straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> The kid is not my son. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> but I feel like it doesn't need to be, you know, like it the musically with the way the song is being fairly simple, you you don't want to get too complicated and poetic and stuff in the lyrics because then it it doesn't sync up right musically. Yeah. yeah. I got to say though for, you know, the early 80s, this is getting into a little bit of almost maybe controversial subject matter. <laughs> yeah, it's a for that time. 
I mean, na- nowadays nobody would think twice about a song like this. No, and I'm sure there's there's probably been hundreds since. But 1982, and especially coming from an artist like Michael Jackson, who for at least most of his career had this super innocent, squeaky clean image attached to him, and he's coming out with a single about you know, no, that that's not my kid that you're you're pregnant with or whatever. It it was quite a change it was definitely an acceleration of from off the wall when he was trying to go to a little bit more of a mature content and then in this it's like yeah he's jumped full adult stuff going on now (laughs) right yeah he's uh he's not a child anymore that's for sure i did watch the music video though did you watch the music video I did not watch it today, uh, but I have watched it many, many times yeah, in my I mean, life. I, I so I watched it for this, but I've definitely seen it. It's 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 interesting. Yeah, as with many of the videos that he made, it it's almost as good as the song. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. I mean, and some of the effects and stuff that they did were were super cool for that time too. Like the, the light up floor, the stairs that lit up, the kind of the the, the oh. use of light. Oh man, dude! Like, I I loved Michael Jackson as a kid. Like, and the video, I love that light up sidewalk. Like, yeah. I wish I could have a light up sidewalk <laughs> so much. And uh, speaking of the music video, I'm sure you saw this too. There there was a little bit of interesting story uh, controversy to go along with that as well. Now, not not anything like with the music video itself, uh, but when they went to release the music video. Uh, they wanted to show it on MTV, and MTV did not want to show it, uh, allegedly because they did not feel that a black singer fit in with the rock vibe that they were going for, is the quote. Uh, so the president of CBS Records, who was you know at the top of the hierarchy of Michael's recording career at the time, just went full out at MTV. And yeah, just said, straight up went after him. <laughs> said, I will pull all of our artists off of your network and I will go public and fucking tell everybody you wouldn't show the video because he's black. Yup. <laughs> so, of course, MTV tucked their tail between their legs back down and showed the video many, many, many times after that. Yeah, it went on heavy rotation and it actually went on to sell more copies of the album. So, you know, MTV in their early 80s racism very nearly cost themselves a lot because Michael Jackson music videos became the biggest music videos yeah. for a very long time. So, you know, who knows where MTV would be if they weren't the ones showing everybody Billie Jean and Thriller and <laughs> Beat It videos all the time. They would have switched over to reality shows much sooner and not stopped showing music videos earlier than they already did. So, you know, it just goes to show you you shouldn't you shouldn't make decisions based on racism because it's dumb. <laughs> yeah, very and dumb. And you'll probably you'll probably hurt yourself. <laughs> That's right. That's the official hit shuffle podcast stance. We haven't done one in a while. <laughs> official hit hit shuffle podcast stance. Racism is dumb. Very true, and we fully support that. Yes, don't be dumb.
Alright, so again, my song was Billie Jean by Michael Jackson off of the 1982 album Thriller. And we will be back after a short break for Matt's role in his song. Yeah, let's see what I get this time. And we are back. Matt, let's get your roll and see what we come up with for part two. All right, let's see what we get. Oh, 12. Let's see what I get here. Let's go. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, that's a, not a real track. No, fuck, <laughs> really? This is the song you're going to give me? <laughs> it's a what song you... we've already done. Wow. It's you Tag have... Yourself on the Tagline. You have like over 10,000 songs. How is that even possible? I have 11,207. Like... Come on, Spotify. They give me this, an actual song we've already done. I feel like the chances of that have to be like point zero 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 something compared to getting a different song, you know, a new yeah. song. Let's see what what's next. Okay, so <laughs> we're gonna do Snake Pit from Enter Shikari. Come and join the All right, and that was Snake Pit from Enter Shikari off their Flash Flood of Color album. What a good band. God, what a good band, and, and probably one of my favorite songs from them, actually. There is no other band like Inner Shikari. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. And they are, and they've been around for a while, too, and they're still going. With, I believe, no member changes at any point. No member changes, no. They, so they originally formed in 1999 as the band Hybrid with two Ys, H-Y-B-R-Y-D. Oh, of course. 1999 had used wise for everything, man. Exactly. And that was, how, how do you pronounce his name? Is it Rao? I think it's Rue. Rue? I've never okay. been entirely clear on that. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I could have looked it up, but I didn't. Yeah. It might be Rue. I think it's Rue Reynolds, but it could be, I don't know, man. Uh, European names I'm not solid on all the time. Well, with Mr. Reynolds on guitar, Chris Batten on drums, and Rob Rolf on drums for Hybrid. But then in 2003, they added Rory Clulo. Jesus. Got some names in this one. <laughs> Whew. And then, then they changed themselves into Enter Shikari. So 20 years. Yeah, that's, that's a, a long time to go with no people leaving or changing or any, as we see yeah. so much. There's at least a couple member changes normally for a band that's around for a long time. And I never knew where the name came from until now. Yeah, neither did I. I don't know I. if you ever looked this up before, but it was named after a boat. Yes, a boat named Shikari. That uh, Reynolds' uncle owned 
And I didn't know that Shikari means hunter in Hindi. Which is... Which is dope. Yeah, and not at all anything I would have guessed not knowing where the name no. came from. No. Now, when they switched over to end Shikari, Reynolds shifted over to lead vocals and a lot of the electronics. Some rhythm guitars work and stuff like that, but mostly lead vocal and the all the programmed electronics that you hear. Which what? came to be a huge part of their sound. Massive part of their sound, as you hear in this song. Now, in the early days, they released a bunch of demos between 2003 and 2004 that would eventually be, some songs would be re-recorded for the Take to the Skies album in 2007. Yeah, that's that's kind of a long time from like when they the songs came out on the EPs until the album actually finally came out. Yeah, and there was something I saw they had planned for an EP or were going to put out or said they were going to put out an EP around 2005, but nothing ever came from it. Yeah, that would have been interesting because all of those early EPs are are good they're 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 very rough but they're they're really good and they're very they're like a harder versions of the songs than ended up being on the actual album yeah i mean and the people who know this band or or familiar with this style of music know at least part of one of their old songs it's the beginning of sorry you're not a winner that's been memed hundreds of times and i see it all over tiktok or like the the elders that you can't not clap that three times when you hear it. Yeah, I, it really, like, the whole song just stops and it's just clap, clap, clap. It, I mean, you can't not clap you can't. when there's a clap part like that. Especially like that, and it's really good. And there's a lot of, like, videos of people, like, carrying stuff and, like, this song comes with a drop, everything and clap. It's, you know, it's been, it's it's gotten around for a while. Which is which is kind of a really niche thing to turn yeah. into. It really is, like but it's that. really funny. But then after 2007, you know, they had Common Dreads come out in 2009. A massive amount of touring going on all the time. Seems to be their thing. Touring and especially festivals. Inner Shikari yeah. loves a good festival. If you have a festival anywhere, they will play it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, As uh, going down, if you just look over some of their tour, they've played basically every type of rock or electronic festival in the UK. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, because they have such a crossover. Yeah, there's so many different styles of, of music, and it appeals to so many different people. You know, they can show up at a rock festival or an EDM festival and fit in at both. <laughs> yeah, and do very well at both. So then after that, they released A Flash Flood of Color, which is what this track is from. With Snake Pit actually being... The first single that was released off of the album. Yeah. In September of 2011. Funny little thing. The band released an official beer collab of a Snake Pit beer <laughs> later that year in 2012. I, mean, I wish I could have tried that. Which I, I feel like that was, was pretty early on because a lot of people do beer collabs now. But I feel like 2012, there weren't a whole lot of bands doing beers <laughs> that just seems to be like oh also it could be a uk thing could That's have been more true. of a uk thing then than it is now because we weren't uh, the u.s wasn't really like super beer focused at that time like it is now with all the, you know your custom collaborations and all your fancy differently flavored shit well a flash flood of color was released in january 2012 and by the end of the first week it had reached number four in the uk charts 
which is pretty crazy for like a relatively niche sound i feel yeah. like. i mean despite combining a bunch of styles in music it's not a very mainstream sound <laughs> no not at all and i also didn't know that they had their own label in the uk ambush reality that sounds like something they do yeah but it was released by ambush reality in the uk and then it was actually released by hopeless records in the u.s uh, which is a label that we definitely love. I absolutely know that label very, very well. But yeah, they, they toured extensively after this album came out, too. Yeah, this is uh, became worldwide touring. Uh, you know, everywhere in Europe, all over the UK, Germany, Spain, the United States, Japan, South Africa. Yeah. Everywhere. Just massive touring. And for like five or six months, it's beginning of like may to end of september which is a long time for a tour uh, they are definitely a band that you know puts in 110 percent to give all they can to their fans as oh, much yeah. as they can oh yeah definitely and it shows i mean they, they have such a following a yeah, dedicated very devoted, following. devoted fans and you know it's easy to understand when the band it goes out and puts that much time and effort into touring all over the world all the time so you can go see them and dance and have a good time. Like, yeah. <laughs> and they consistently put out good albums. Oh, absolutely. There's there's not much I've heard from them that I don't like in some way, shape, or form. As well as they constantly evolve their sound from album yes. to album. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do with their inclusion of, you know, electronica. Synths yeah, there's... And, dr and, you know, drum machines and all that kind of stuff. They pull from the entire spectrum of electronic genres, so just that in itself gives you a ton of different sounds to incorporate in your music, as well as all of the, you know, more analog instrument like rock and hardcore and metal sounds that they also incorporate as well. Yeah, yeah, and then they're also very, anyone who knows them, they know they're very politically charged. Definitely, and... This period of common dreads and a flash flood of color is when they really developed that political voice. Yeah, and became very well known for that political voice. However, this track, Snake Pit, actually is not political. Yes, one, one of the few on this album that doesn't really get into the politics, but it's basically about partying as a way to escape from the constant stress and how much the world sucks and everything yeah there's a quote from reynolds saying it's hard to write positive songs with everything going on in the world but this track is basically one full-on party it's about cherishing your friendships and living compassionately yeah which which that's always good you know and in, in all of the political discourse you always you got to remember to take a break get rid of some of that stress and have a good time and be with your people that's right. And this is definitely a party. This track is a party. They they get they get wild and especially for it being like a, a single and a first single. It it's not it's not tame at all. No. Now he's might as well jump into it. I mean it starts off with that nice little soft violin with a with the quiet vocal and you're thinking, Oh shit, it's gonna get you know it's about to get serious. But then in in the Ender Shikari way they do that like almost like breaking the fourth wall or like yeah, they interrupt the, themselves which happens i think multiple times even in this song yeah or where they they 
very kind of openly like the the vocals call for a, a music change or the music follows something that the vocals are saying which is a really cool technique to use in your songwriting yeah and then the, it, it opens up with that like that breakbeat and those electronic parts yeah i love the the bass and the synths here like they're very whooshy and kind of i don't know so a lot of movement to it yeah definitely and that amazing sound effect that comes up again and talked about later in the song then he has then when the vocals come in it's he has a very unique delivery and he always has yeah i don't i can't really think of anyone to easily compare it to no not at all. i mean the, you you can compare it more to like a hip-hop artist than anything else because it has that flow to it yeah i think there's definitely a lot of thought put into that more, where it's more about the rhythm of the vocals necessarily than the melody of the vocals all the yeah. time. Yeah. And then it breaks into those like heavily distorted guitars with those drum hits. They're just super yeah, I, big. I love this transition. You just get this, you know, super distorted compressed guitar with this riff. And then at the end you get a, kind of like a rise in the background and i absolutely love this part the vocals say oh come on just open the door and they use an actual sample of a door opening <laughs> yeah they actually have a door opening and then everything just like explodes and that's yeah that's like the transition which is like opening the door to the party the door opens and then the song goes on yeah And then it's the full band comes in with the, you know, the, the harsh vocals. And there's some, like, group chants, some gang vocals going on. Yeah, you, you should... The first part of this verse, I guess you would call it, is, you know, all of the electronic stuff. And this shifts a lot more into the, like, rock, hardcore yeah. side of their sound for the second part of the verse. And then that chorus hits you. Yeah, the chorus is kind of like... It's probably the most, I guess, mainstream, normal sounding section of the song. Yeah, yeah. And it's super fucking catchy, too. You, you've got the vocals calling you to come join the party and leave your anxieties behind, which, I mean, who does that not appeal to? Yeah, especially now. And it's a, it's a really, I have it down as a really dirty sound. Yes, there, there's a lot of grit, overdrive, compression on Fuzz, like everything. Yeah in the song and there's definitely some synth work going on in the background like pads and stuff that are just real grimy and dirty and distorted but there's yeah, also a, a clean backing vocal going on at the same time absolutely incredible sound design to just layer everything you know all the way from the vocals through all the instruments to like the underlying synths that you don't even really hear individually yeah if you really sit down and listen like like we were listening down and listening to this a number of times in headphones and really pulling apart individual sections there's a lot of layers that go into that chorus then you go out of that back to the guitar riff from the first verse right with the chanting and the yeah, you vocals get and stuff kind of a repeat of that second part of the verse but then oh boy whew, it goes somewhere there's like that little paul's but there's a really super heavy guitar. Yeah, everything cuts out except a 
very distorted low tuned guitar in one ear. And then the vocal part here again is it it doesn't directly tell the music what to do, but it definitely the music goes off of this vocal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're nice guys until we're not. You get that until we're not gets in the very like deep that growl yeah yeah and then it's just i mean this is a breakdown that is heavier than most hardcore or metal bands could write themselves if they tried as hard as they could yeah i mean it's it's a it's a it's a beat down breakdown like it is a brutal breakdown yeah you got the slow hits like that guitar the deep chugging guitar you got the china symbol in there because you can't have a great breakdown without a china symbol absolutely not and it's kind of like off time too yeah I re- that really adds to kind of like the filthiness of the breakdown it's it's a little off and then you've got that kind of like little stutter part in yeah. the middle of it Which makes it more chaotic and the you know the guitar and the drums are locked in and following each other and it's just it almost really does feel like like you're just like in a boxing match and just getting absolutely hammered. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And and uh, I don't know if you watched the video for it. Uh, I did not. But the I mean it's it's a pretty straightforward music video. It's it's a lot of them like just playing to a, an audience. But like when this happens, there's a close up on Reynolds' face, and then as soon as the breakdown hits, the the camera like. I guess pans backwards, like actually goes backwards through the crowd, and like this big pit just like erupts in front of it. It's crazy. Like as it's going, it's it's pretty that, awesome. That's perfect. You got to have a big moment for that yeah. breakdown. But then you get this like vocal that comes in, this vocal climb that comes in and leads you back into the chorus. Yeah, seemingly which out of nowhere. That's a pretty crazy transition to go from that heavy of a breakdown back to the chorus, which is like almost like a a poppy type sound. Yeah. And then again, you get the that chorus with the clean backing vocals and the, the harmonies. Yeah. And then you get some, they add some more background vocals and double the chorus, which the second part of the chorus really opens up and it's more of like a big chant type instead of just the single vocal yeah it goes down to like this big halftime drum part and they add in these like octave synths and then the octave guitars and still have the low guitar going and it's just this really big like massive part kind of like a big huge flourish crescendo of sound and then kind of just slips back into the little breakbeat and warbly synth parts uh back from the beginning yep to kind of take you at it with the the <laughs> famous Louis Armstrong sounds. Oh god, it's absolutely amazing uh outtake from the vocals that kept <laughs> in the bottom. I was so glad they kept that. He, he got a little too uh little too into the voice. Yeah. <laughs> and did did very you know, it's a very good Louis Armstrong. Yeah, it actually it really is a really good Louis Armstrong impersonation, but it's just really funny that it's in there. Yeah, I love they keep that in and just just the laughing and the little jokes about it and everything. 
Like that really adds something like that kind of stuff too. When you leave those things in that builds a connection with the fans that, you know, perfect polished kind of sterile music doesn't always do. Right. It definitely sounds like they had a lot of fun recording that. Yes. Which reminds me, I forgot uh, when we started talking about the album, they recorded the album in Thailand. Yeah, I saw that. I thought that not, was really interesting. Not what I would have guessed. And it said that uh, they, they originally started recording it in England, and uh, they, had, they found out they had a friend who had the studio in Thailand, and they all started joking about it. Like, oh, man, yeah, we should totally, you know, let's record the album in Thailand or whatever. And then they actually sat down and thought about it and talked about it and realized that it made really good sense. Yeah, like, why wouldn't you? So, I mean, it's, it's a journey out there, but the cost of everything is a lot lower in Thailand. So, you know, financially, it actually made a lot of sense for them. And it said that the studio was basically four walls in the middle of the jungle. Yeah, an hour and a half drive south of Bangkok. So, while it, it's definitely not comfortable accommodations, that had to be a hell of an atmosphere for recording an album. Oh, absolutely. But, I mean, if you like this track and you like this type of sound, you, you have to go back and listen to just the whole discography. Yeah, pretty much everything. It's all, they're all somewhat different, and they, there's a bunch of great songs on every album, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, you may not, even if you don't like the whole thing, you're going to find tracks on each album that, that really resonate. Every song pulls some different influences from here and there, so... It, even on one album, you get a bunch of different sounds and vibes, and there's something for almost everybody, at, you know, on each album. Yeah, absolutely. And it's definitely going to be making its way back into my regular rotation. Yeah, I just had uh, a couple songs from Inner Shikari on my shuffle the past couple weeks. I'm like, yeah, this is <laughs> so good. Yeah, they haven't showed up for me in a while, and, and coming back to this again, it, it definitely makes me want to dive back in and, and listen to all their shit again, because I'm a huge fan. Yeah, and especially if, you know, you're, uh, you're feeling stressed, or you got some anger or aggression you need to get out. It's good for that. Yeah, these, uh, with a lot of stuff going on in the world now, even though it's, you know, 10 years later, so these, these uh, politically-centered albums here of... Common Dreads and Flash Flood of Color, a lot of the stuff still, you know, holds true and still hits really hard today. Yeah, absolutely. I should uh, unfortunately still hits hard today. Yeah, I actually saw a lot of the, the themes and politics and stuff they talk about, it comes off when you listen to it, it's, you know, very anti-conservative for the most part. But the band says that Actually, their message is anti-politics as a whole. Yeah, it's the, it's the whole system. It's not just one side or the other. It's everything's fucked. Yeah, because from especially from what we, we're used to in the United States with a lot of the politically themed music has been quite different. And Inner Shikari's perspective from being over in the UK, you know, it's different issues, different politicians that they've had. And a lot of this music is about the kind of late 2000s, early 2010 financial crisis. Yeah. 
and how the government was not dealing with the problems, not taking care of the people. And, you know, so the band's just kind of like, well, what the hell is, is the point of the government if they're not doing anything or helping anybody? Yeah. And then they wrote a whole bunch of really good music about it. And I really love, uh, they say that, you know, politics, they feel, is an outdated system, which basically, like, it just needs to be eliminated. And the world needs to base itself off of science and technology, which yep. I'm all yep. about. <laughs> hey, I'm for it. I am for it. Well, all right. Again, that was Snake Pit from Enter Shikari off the Flash Flood of Color album. And we'll be right back after this and we'll wrap this thing up. All right. And again, my song was Billie Jean by Michael Jackson off his 1982 album Thriller. And my song was Snake Pit by Enter Shikari off their A Flash Flood of Color album. Now, if you want to listen to these songs and everything else that we've talked about, you can find that on our Spotify playlist, the Hit Shuffle Podcast playlist. And you can find us on social media uh, on Instagram and X slash Twitter as hit underscore shuffle. We have a Facebook page, the Hit Shuffle Podcast, as well as a website, hitshufflepodcast.com. And if you like what you hear and you want to spread us around to other people, we definitely ask you to share it with your friends and family. And also, also if you could leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you listen to us, that would be greatly appreciated. It's, it's how we get into the algorithm and get passed out to more and more people. Uh, we could really, really appreciate your help. And now it's, uh, now it's your turn to shuffle. All right, now it's time for our fan roll. So I'm going to roll, and whatever number I get, shuffle that many songs into your library and hit us up on the social medias and tell us what you got. Fifteen. Fifteen. So go ahead and roll fifteen. Oh, go ahead and roll. So go ahead and shuffle fifteen into your collection. Tell us what song you got. Get us on social medias. We have a form on our website now. You can fill out and send in some information, and we'll start, uh, we'll start working these into our show. So, for the Hit Shuffle Podcast, I've been your host, Matt. And I've been your host, Dave. Keep on shuffling. Tear down the political system. If you want to listen to these songs and everything else that we've talked about, you can find that on Spotify. Spotify. <laughs> <laughs>